Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, your weekly jaunt into discussing the latest trek into the final frontier, Star Trek Discovery. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chris Clow, and I am joined today, as always, by members of our wonderful panel, including Rachel Clow. Hey, Chris. Hello. Cicero Holmes. Hello. <laughs> Winded <laughs> it up there. And Zaki Hassan. Hi. Hey, oh man, how is everybody doing today? We got started a little bit late this week because I came down from a uh, case of the phage. Uh, but other than that, we're ready to talk some Star Trek. How are you fellas? Uh, week in Trek as usual. Cicero, I actually wanted to start with a different sure. question for okay. you this week. Um, because people that know you probably know that you're the co-creator of one of the absolutely best gaming podcasts oh, on the internet. Thank Spawn you. on me. So in that vein, I was wondering, what have your interactions been like with the Star Trek franchise in gaming? Because there is a bit of a storied history with Star Trek in gaming. So what are some of your favorites and least favorites? Well, uh, so I have not been able to play the latest game <laughs> in Trek, which is uh, Star Trek Bridge Commander uh, for the right. VR headsets of Bridge choice, crew, right, whatever yeah. they may be. Uh, yeah, Bridge Crew, not Bridge Commander. Um, the last Trek game that I played was on the 360. Um, it was a strategy game that I wanted to be much better than it was. Um, and it was called... Uh, I'm going to vamp while I... Find the I name think it's of Star the Trek game. Legacy is the one that you're thinking of. Star Trek Legacy is the one that I'm thinking of. Very, thank you very much, sir. Um, yes, and I was very, very excited for uh, for that game. It is available uh, for uh, a very nominal price uh, at your local video game mm -hmm. reseller. And I'm not positive about its backwards compatibility rating at as of mm -hmm. present on the, the Xbox or uh, on the Xbox family of consoles. Um, but uh, let's see. So I have played. I have played some other games. I, there was a a Star Trek console, I mean, not console, arcade game that I played as a oh. youth. Um, yeah, that's, that's how, you know, I'm old. Cause I call myself a youth, um, but, uh, but it was, it was really, it was really fun. I remember, remember playing it. it oh, that's right. It, it had vector graphics. It was based loosely based on the, the wrath of Khan. Um, it was just called star Trek, the arcade game. It came out in okay. 82 and it was. And it was a it was a vector graphic, uh, vector graphics that's like simulator of sorts where you you uh, flew around the galaxy in the Enterprise hunting birds of prey, Klingon birds of prey. That sounds awesome. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, quarters. there were quarters used. Well, sure, of course. Yeah. And there actually was a game called Star Trek Bridge Commander that came out, I think, in around 2000 that I played on the PC. And I love that right. game. I mean, mo most right. of my personal exposures to 
Trek gaming have been in the 3D era. I, my brother did have the uh, 25th anniversary Star Trek game for the NES that he played to oh, death. Yeah. And, yes, uh, I remember that. That was the TNG game. There, there was a TNG game that came out, I think, for both the NES and the SNES, and maybe the right. Genesis too. But the there was a TOS game that was oh. that came out. Oh yeah, I remember. It, Okay, yeah, so because I remember, Zachy, that you were like a primarily an NES gamer back in the day because that game came out, I think, in 91. It was 91, yeah. I, I, yeah. I didn't play it, but I remember it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, some of my favorite Trek games are the Elite Force games, the first-person shooters from Right, that's right. I yeah. modded the hell out of those games. Like, I was one of those kids that, you know, would download the PC mods from people because the uniforms weren't quite right. So, canon minded game modifiers would release <laughs> mods for it. I'd be like, okay, good. Wait, this sound effect isn't right. So, I would actually go to like record the sound from a DVD rip of a movie or something and put it in myself. That's how I much. Love it. How pedantic of a Star yes. Trek fan. You I am. would do that. Yeah, I know. No, I, I, I love it. I love I it. That is fantastic. I, you know, I wasn't much of a, when I was PC gaming, I was strictly war simulators. So tank simulations, flight simulators, mm-hmm. uh, military combat simulators. Um, but uh, yeah, primarily most of my gaming is done on consoles. So I, so I sure. missed a lot of those really, really good Star Trek, uh, you know, uh, or games, games that use the Star Trek license well. Um, yeah, when Activision had it, that was kind of the the golden age of Star right. Trek gaming. Yeah. And uh, if you can find Bridge Commander, I would highly recommend it because it yeah. was, in addition to telling a pretty decent story, it puts you in the captain's chair, kind of in the same vein as the VR Bridge Crew game, but there were some deeper mechanics in the older game. Nice. So, okay. Good old games. Here I come. There you go. Now, Zeki. Yes, sir. You look like you've been busy as all hell this week. You had press events that you got to. You took pictures with movie stars. That's just the kind of life that you lead. But uh, so in that in that vein, then, did you find time to continue your broadcast order rewatch, or were you pretty much taken up by Gary Oldman? Well, given the choice between spending time with my kids and Commissioner Gordon, Commissioner Gordon wins. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately, uh, uh, yeah, it's just it's been a busy week. Yeah, Gary Oldman. Uh, and Ben Mendelsohn were in town uh, to promote uh, the new movie uh, Darkest Hour, which I would mm-hmm. fully expect Gary Oldman to win an Oscar for uh, for his portrayal of, of Winston Churchill. So uh, that was a very cool. That was my cool thing that I did this week. Norm- normally, Discovery Debrief is my cool thing, but sorry, you got you, <laughs> you have to be number two this week. <laughs> Hey, I think that's good company to be in, though. I mean, if we have, if if we're kind of in the same league, at least a little bit with Gary Oldman, then hey, I'll take it. it that sounds really ben awesome. Ben Mendelsohn was first. Of all, I, I had a. This is this is the second time that I met Gary Oldman because uh, I was at the, the the world premiere for Planet of the Apes a couple of years ago, and and I chatted with him there, and and I was, you know, it, I'm not trying to like make myself sound great, but it's one of those cool things where sometimes you're like. I've met Gary Oldman not once but twice. <laughs> I think I have a pretty decent life. You know what I mean? Like you have those. You step outside yourself for a moment. And you're like, that's pretty neat. You know? Oh yeah. Well, hey, if you're not going to make yourself sound great, then we'll do it there for you. you. So <laughs> you know, we'll keep it there. <laughs> Rachel, you continued your Deep Space Nine rewatch, right? Kinda. Kinda. I mostly played Mario. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I, I can uh, I can attest to that. Super Mario Odyssey has taken up both of our time uh, quite a bit over the last week or so. But that's the wormhole to... you guys went through. 
Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. yep. Yeah, yeah. it, it, Mario tends to rope us into it whenever he makes a, a new jaunt outside the Mushroom Kingdom. So, but what you? Which episode did you watch? The last one I watched was where there was this group of Gem Hadar, and they were trying to. They've like abducted O'Brien and Bashir, and they were trying to like force Bashir to make them uh, like not need the Ketrasol White. Right. Yeah. That was, it was, was kind of weird. Uh, well, I, I wasn't mean, a huge fan, I guess. Oh, really? See, I thought it was sort of a, an extension of the classic Trek moral conundrum, right? Yeah, but I felt it was kind of unfocused. Okay. All right. Mm. Like, I didn't really understand what the, like, what it was trying to say. I see. Well, I mean. And also just didn't make any sense. Like, one Jem Hadar became, like, he didn't need the thing he was addicted to, and, and they never explained why, and for some reason that bothered me. That's true, like, but if like I'm... Explain yourself. If I'm remembering correctly, though, that kind of serves as an impetus for that uh, member of the Tall Shiar to want to get his hands on Bashir when Bashir makes that trip to Romulus later. Oh. I think it's late. It's either the next season... Or maybe uh, the season Jem- after that. Jemardar okay. alien physiology allows them to quit things cold turkey. Um, that is that little known Jemardar. Well, at least with one of them. I mean, you know, that was actually one of the only ways in which, because I don't know what, how you guys feel in general about Star Trek yes. Insurrection, but. Uh, you know, the, the one way that they roped that movie into the overall Dominion War arc was that the Sona, the primary antagonists of that movie, were manufacturers of Ketracel White. It wasn't even really something that they gave a lot of service to. I, I just can't help but watch Insurrection and think that that was such a missed opportunity. They could have done a TNG DS9 crossover during the war, and it would have been incredible. But probably would have been but, then, but then you don't get uh, data serving as a flotation device. <laughs> <laughs> Trade-offs, right? I mean, you got to take the good with the bad, I guess, right? <laughs> oh, man. Oh. It's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as for my week, I, and I alluded to the idea earlier that I was taken up by Mario, and I'm also taken up a little bit with uh, Call of Duty World War II because I'm writing a review for that for Geeks and Gamers, but um, I did finally finish the Desperate Hours novel. Rachel beat me by about a week, I think. Uh, so I thought that it was a good book, but we're actually going to... Rachel and I are both probably going to record a discussion episode about the book specifically during the mid-season break while we're waiting for new episodes after next week. So be on the lookout for that. I also took a look back at the Tales of the Dominion War anthology book, and I forgot how much I loved the short story that actually teamed up Doctors Crusher, Bashir, and McCoy. It was a pretty nice uh, way to bring them all together in a very eventful moment in in the Star Trek universe. So... I think that basically covers that. So why don't we get to some brief news items? So the first one, uh, reasonably consequential when it comes to Star Trek Discovery, work on season two is about to begin, and the current Klingon War plot is actually planned to be wrapped up in the first season. And uh, this broke a few days ago, a Trek movie. And this I actually find kind of encouraging because I was under the impression that the series might take a long form approach with the Klingon war, but I'm actually glad that it's not. I think one season with this one more expansive arc is a pretty good idea. Uh, 
because obviously we know that this war doesn't last into the year of the original series. And I'm sure that there are plenty of other stories that they can tell at this point in the timeline. But what do you guys think about this news, Zachy? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to echo what you said. Yeah, because I was actually having that thought watching this episode a little bit where I'm like, you know, I'm kind of reaching, like, I'm kind of done with the Klingon war. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I was watching the show and I'm like, do I want to sit through like several seasons of this? I don't know that I do. So mm-hmm. when I, when I saw you, you post this news that, the, that they're wrapping it up, I, I didn't know that, but I was like, well, uh, they clearly read my mind because that, <laughs> that's, I'm, I'm glad they're moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Rachel? Well, I think what they said was that like every every season is a novel and this first season is the Klingon War novel. So I don't really believe them. I think that they're <laughs> going to find a way to just like drag it out more, but huh. All right. We'll see. Well, I mean, I'm sure that it's going to reverberate through future seasons yeah, in some yeah, form exactly, or another, yeah. but whether or not it's the A plot of a season 2 yeah. Who's to say? Cicero, what do you think? I, for one, am very disappointed in this news. Oh. No, I'm not. I mean, it's, so, <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, you know, yeah, it, you can you can only uh, kind of just like real life. And I, you know, I hate to get kind of uh, morbid for a second, but, uh, but uh, you know, war is only good, uh, is only entertaining for about a year. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then after after that, you're just kind of like you're you're still at it. Like you know, you can't be in, you can't have every episode where you're telling where you have a plots, b plots, and c plots. You can't have every episode where where you're trying to learn about characters or you're trying to move along uh, some other uh, smaller stories and still have like and still be actively at war. Um, you know, it, I think it, it, I think it hurt, uh, it hurt Battlestar Galactica a little bit, um, uh, because of that kind of threat. And even, and even they kind of shied away from, uh, you know, dealing with, with the Cylons in, in later episodes and later seasons where there were longer stretches of time in between it. And, and kind of like you, what you said, Chris, I think they'll, the, you know, obviously the, the Cleons will still be an antagonist of sorts going into mm. season two and beyond, hopefully knock on wood. Um, but, but yeah, let's, let's come to some type of, uh, cessation of the war by the end of this season. That'd be great. Your mention of BSG just briefly reminded me of a relatively recent news item where we, you know, we saw at the beginning of some of those later episodes, the Cylons have a plan. Right. And then Ronald D. Moore was at a convention recently and he said, yeah, we didn't know what the plan right. was. <laughs> like, through the end of the show, we, di- we didn't know what the plan We We thought we'd come up with something and we just never did. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah they, they, tried uh. to, they tried to trust me their way into uh, some, some type of inspiration. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, second item, uh, CBS, shock and awe, says that Star Trek Discovery has been a game changer for CBS All Access. And because of that, it plans to add a reboot of the Twilight Zone to the service. And reportedly, Jordan Peele is attached to its development. I don't Mm -hmm. think that that's been entirely confirmed, 
But his involvement certainly uh, gets a lot of people's attention. Cicero, what do you think about this? So uh, as the resident uh, darkest person of color on the show, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 for one, I'll say this. I loved Get Out. I thought it was phenomenal. I thought it was uh, relevatory. Um, and, and obviously, I think uh, Key and, you know, people that are fans of Key and Peel feel very, very strongly about him. And, and, uh, um, I, you know, I feel very strongly about him and his comedic talents. But I think that, um, you know, I don't, I, 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 I worry about everyone going to the well a little too much. Um, you can get people to sign up for uh six or ten dollars a month or you know a hundred dollars a year for Star Trek because outside of Star Wars, it's probably one of the big i mean it's definitely the biggest franchise in sci fi uh second you know second biggest uh franchise in sci fi and one of the most recognizable brands in in the world in the history of the world um I don't mm-hmm. know that Twilight Zone is that and um, I definitely do think that Jordan Peele has uh, has a lot of uh, charisma. He has a lot of stories. He has a very, very imaginative brain. Um, but I worry that we're going to get Jordan Peele fatigue because he's got some other movie that he's working on. There's, you know, like he is the new hot thing in Hollywood mm-hmm. when it comes to creative to creative sessions. He is the 2016, 2017 version of Donald Glover. Um and, ah. and you know, and I'm um now Donald Don Donald Glover has done pretty well for himself uh with with the, his successes, but I wonder if uh people are gonna try and go to the well a little too too often with this stuff. So I'm worried about it. I see. Zachy, are you a Twilight Zone fan? I love the Twilight Zone. Um, the the original series. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I, I for me, when I think of the writers who have uh, really influenced my life, it's Rod Serling and Aaron Sorkin. Right. So uh, I I I think that Serling's voice has never been replicated. Right. And and so I'm I'm kind of uh, my perspective is slightly different from Cicero in the sense that I'm like, well, we've already gotten three attempts to revive the Twilight Zone that had varying degrees of success that didn't touch the original. So I'm kind of like, well, if anybody could maybe do something different with it, I certainly th- think Jordan Peele has uh, the, the vision for it. If, you know, Get Out is practically a Twilight Zone episode. That is true. Uh, you know, so so I'm I'm not opposed to it. I, I think at this point, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, well, what have you got to lose? I mean, if, if you're Paramount, You've got this, or CBS, excuse me. You've got this IP sitting there. Uh, sure, why not exploit it? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, nothing's ever going to touch the original. I mean, to me, at this point, it's uh, the original Twilight Zone is like the original Star Trek. It sits in in sort of hallowed terrain, and everything else that comes after it can achieve varying degrees of success. But to me, nothing will ever touch the the original. Sure. I think that's a very understandable perspective. And I know that Rachel's a Twilight Zone fan. Rachel, why don't you tell us why? Well, because it was always on at the holidays. (laughs) (laughs) I associate it with not having to go to school and spending time with my family watching Twilight Zone. And it holds up so well. It does. It does. does. Yes. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's just astonishing. Um, I guess I look at this move as um, 
as a consumer, I'm happy with it because I think I appreciate anything that adds value to my CBS All Access mm. uh, subscription. Sure. Um, and from what I could tell, it seems like CBS is investing in CBS All Access as kind of like a, a brand um, with a suite of products for us to consume. And, um, you know, I, I don't love paying for just one show. Um, so I'm I'm happy that there'll be more value added to that. So. Sure. Well, and, you know, the proof is ultimately going to be in the pudding. You know, we'll have to see exactly what kinds of stories are yielded from this. I mean, when you say the Twilight Zone, then that automatically conjures a pretty high pedigree of particularly allegorical storytelling right. and commenting on the world. And Rachel and I have never seen Get Out. It's a huge oversight on our part. We actually really need to watch it. But I mean, we are very familiar with Peel's comedic talents. And if what I hear about Get Out is true, then I can absolutely see the the correlation sure. talent wise. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not automatically opposed to this, I suppose, but I'll be really interested to see what actually uh, comes of this. Cicero, you have some to add? Yeah, I, I just want to say that uh, we will change the fact that you guys have not seen Get Out tonight. Oh, oh, so, oh will, will we? Yes, we will. So, so, that, so that'll be by the time people get to hear this, you will have seen it. So. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, so that's actually going to do it for the news items. So why don't we get into the discussion of this week's episode, episode eight of Star Trek Discovery season one, Sevis Pacem Parabellum. So we kind of started off in the middle of a firefight this week. Uh, the USS Gagarin was under attack from, uh, I think it was several different Klingon birds of prey, I think was yes. what the, the uh, vessels were specified as. So coming to the aid of the, of the Gagarin out of a spore drive jump, Discovery is unfortunately unable to prevent its destruction because of the Klingon's cloaking technology. So desperate for a way to detect these ships even when they're cloaked, Michael Burnham, Ash Tyler, and Saru are sent to the planet Pavo, a seemingly uninhabited planet with a naturally occurring crystalline transmitter that broadcasts the planet's vibrational frequency into space. They hope to try and harness this transmitter somehow to create a sonar that's capable of detecting cloaked Klingon ships. So automatically, the first thing that kind of comes to mind about this episode is that this is the first of the away mission gone wrong episodes of Star Trek Discovery, a trope that I believe goes back to the B plot of The Enemy Within, which is a powerhouse tour de force of William Shatner performing capabilities. But uh, what do you guys think of the show's vision of just a, a, no, a, a long-time Trek trope in landing parties and its use of the away mission itself as a dramatic device? Zachy, what do you think? Uh, you know, I, I, the, the thought I had as I was watching, I was just like, the, I don't find Saru a particularly interesting character. That's the realization I had this episode. And I found ah. him, I found him grating and... That so that sort of bogged down how I how I plugged in with this episode. I just every time he would doing something, I was like, "Stop being dumb." <laughs> that was my mental monologue, and so I have to admit that kind of. And the other thing I was distracted by, honestly, I was like, "It's it's like uh, uh, the it felt like they they took the the backwoods of like Vancouver, British Columbia, and made it look like uh, a Pandora 
<laughs> I was just like <laughs> distracted by that. So I, you know, I, I, I was not the, the, the A plot on the planet was not hugely engaging to me. Like I have to admit, this episode is the first one to me that feels like kind of a miss. Okay, all right, yeah. fair enough. Cicero, how about you? Yeah, I, I, um, I kind of agree with Zachy about Saru. Like I've loved Saru's interactions with Burnham. And and what I think I realize about Saru is he's great in doses. Like he can come yes. in, he can <laughs> yes. come in and and have uh you know a two or three minute interaction with someone, and you can really feel both the tension and and the condescension from from the from their you know their conflict, their constant conflict. Uh, but he, you know he kind of led this this uh, episode and and. Even right now, after rewatching the episode, I still don't understand why he made why the turn that he made happened, and mm-hmm. it, you know, and how you know, like he was he was kind of uh, I don't know uh, overwhelmed or possessed or what you know whatever whatever you want to call it, and then then all of a sudden he wasn't, and I just don't necessarily like he was enraptured and i don't understand when the the rapture ended for him or or why really outside of them not being on the planet it it was really confusing for me okay all right fair enough rachel how about you um i thought i was a little bit bored during this episode i didn't think it was quite as interesting to me as some of the the past episodes having read the desperate hours book i have to say that i think saru as a character is much more interesting from an internal point of view like when they do things in the book from his um his point of view like his internal monologue is super interesting because he's like he's trying to fit in but he's also like super like nervous and like terrified all the time but like uh from the outside that is is just kind of boring and like (laughs) and like zaki said like annoying it just seems like it's just like stop it um yeah so that that's kind of what i thought well that kind of leads to because the next thing i was going to ask you guys was whether or not this trio worked specifically for you and it sounds like it didn't i mean well maybe Two thirds of it did, but the the full trio. It sounds like there was one guy that dragged the entire thing down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there a question in there? <laughs> they needed a red shirt to like die or something. So they like, should have had the an, en- an ensign Ricky along with them. That's yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> they should have had. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and I can certainly understand that perspective. And no, there wasn't a question in there. I just uh, <laughs> wanted to know whose feelings were strongest and who was going to speak. Well, I, I, I think I think that there there is one portion of Saru's character that you that you kind of got uh, a sense of uh, during this episode, and that's you know basically because his species has such a an attuned fight or flight or flight or flight faster reflex um, <laughs> um, that that you could you could understand like it it is so primal you it it it, it was immediately understandable it was immediately believable that he would have a sense of how to communicate and, and you know kind of uh, be able to uh empath his way into understanding the the 
the the species or you know whatever it was that the the spores uh you know there are lots of spores on this show um (laughs) (laughs) well that also i mean that brings up something else kind of interesting too because for the entire show thus far we've seen saru as a member of a self-described prey race right i mean they they don't have a lot of uh, capability when it comes to fending off predators. They detect danger. But we actually see Saru on the offense in this episode, and it's not an, it's not a pitiful offense. No. I mean, he's a capable fighter when he wants to be. It sounds like what this episode tried to show us is the thing holding him back was his constant fear. Right. And Yeah, and, and, and Chris, I mean, I think the revelation that he offers about like – the the idea that they live in just they in a constant state of fear i mean that's the most revelatory he's been and i did find that interesting because you know like that that sense of heightened you know uh, uh, adrenaline that that you or i have like that's something that like can you imagine being enduring that constantly no like it would screw you up right so yeah. so i i appreciated that insight uh, but, you know, I, I started the show sort of thinking of him as Space Eeyore, and I'm still kind of there, you know? Sure. Yeah, and that's that's understandable. Well, we'll actually, when we get to the point in the episode where he makes that transformation, then we'll get to that. But how about a pedantic continuity question? Huh? Uh, Everybody right, loves yeah, that. Right, yeah, from it. Chris, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so... As far as I know, chronologically speaking, this is the first mention of the Klingon fleet having the ability to cloak their ships. Did anyone else get a kick out of the use of the word screens to describe the cloak? Because yes. I don't think I've heard the word screens used to describe cloaks or shields since the original series. But uh, I just thought that was kind of a fun note. A nice uh, nod from the writers to the terminology that was used. I wonder if we're going to see the overuse of the word quadrant like they used in the original <laughs> series all the time at some point. <laughs> But uh, so they, did did the Klingons never cloak on Enterprise? I truly don't remember. I don't think they did uh, because I, I was doing a little bit of looking on Memory Alpha too, and it described. It didn't go into detail with describing cloaks from a Klingon in Enterprise. The primary cloakers in Enterprise, I think, were the Sulabon. Right. Uh, yes. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but before this, I mean, fandom, and I, I'm reasonably sure that canon had always assumed that the Klingons had gained their ability to cloak from the Romulans through the technology partnership that the Klingons and Romulans explored in that right. episode, the Enterprise incident from the original series, you know, where it's surround, the Enterprise is surrounded by what look like three Klingon D7s, but they're actually Romulans, and Spock uses his Vulcan wiles to to entrance the, the Romulan captain. And I, I love that episode, but, uh, Takuma had a cloak on his ship at the beginning right, of the, the sarcophagus. Show. So I'm reasonably yeah. sure. Yes. Yes. This, the, the, the right. ship of the dead. So I'm reasonably sure that that's now the first instance in the chronology of a Klingon having a cloak, but his was the only Klingon ship with the capability. And now it's been applied to the entire right. fleet. So at least in my mind, that begs the question, where did Takuma get the yes. cloak from? Because at this point, there's only a couple of species that have exhibited the capability. So where do you guys think he might have gotten it from? Cicero, you have a thought? Um, you know, he won it in a dice game um, you know, <laughs> on Rylock 4. I, 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 have, I, have, I have no idea. It, you know, and I, I'm hoping, 
I'm hoping at some point that some of these mysteries uh, from from this show, uh, you know, that this show has presented, uh, I, I, th- I hope that some of them are answered before the season is out. I, I, don't, I don't think any, sure. I don't think we'll find out any of those before we go on break. Mm-hmm. Reasonable assertion, Zachy. How about you? What do you think? Well, I mean, uh, clearly this is a universe where uh, the cloaking technology does exist, so I don't think yes. it's unreasonable that he, he ganked it from, from either the Romulans or the dreaded Suliban uh, <laughs> when no one was looking, you know? Yeah, sure. Rachel? I, I think it's probably likely that the Romulans gave it to him in order to destabilize relations with, the, yeah. with Starfleet. Yeah, see, uh, now you're getting into my territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sounds like something that Tal Shiar would do. Oh, so, totally. Like- no, and, and I mean, just for the record, I tend to have very strong feelings about the Romulans in general. I would love it if this war was at least partially engineered. That would be awesome. Because that so purely Romulan. I mean, we've seen we've seen their influence go back to the dawn of the Federation and trying to even get the Vulcans out of talks that would lead to the faction that would become the Federation. So they're engaged, however limited they are, they're engaged in in uh, in intergalactic affairs. The only crimp in that, and I think I feel Zaki's mind working towards this right now, is that we know that the Federation won't encounter the Romulans again until right, balance right. of terror. So yeah. if the Romulans do have some kind of presence on discovery, then it would probably have to be subtle enough that the Federation doesn't get wind of it. But holy hell, wouldn't that, would that be, be cool if it ended up that, that they, awesome. they had a hand in this in some fashion. But uh, that's just pie in the sky. I mean, what do you guys think though of the Rom? Like, do you think that there's actually reasonable possibility that the Romulans might assert themselves at some point on Discovery, or do you think they're going to have to let that alone, Zachy? Well, I I think that I mean to be honest, it didn't occur to me whether they would be on the show, but just hearing you talk about it, I mean, it's it's a right along the lines of what we saw them do on Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Where they were working behind the scenes, they were, you know, with the, with the Vulcans, and so certainly the idea that the the Romulans have been long term operators who are trying to sow dissension and and mess with the Federation, I think that fits right in with what we know. So I I would I I wouldn't be opposed to that being a revelation. Sure, Cicero. How about you? How do you feel about the Romulans? Uh, you know, Romulans are Illuminati. So it, it's if they. <laughs> I I think it would be awesome to to involve uh, another species, especially a, a species as uh, underhanded and uh, as uh, kind of emotionally driven as the Romulans are, um, you know, as well as uh, smart and and kind of sly uh, to to have them running things in the background as some clandestine either. Uh, your group or organize as a species to kind of stir the pot and, and really kind of stick it to the Federation. Sure. Yeah. Rachel, you think the Romulans could end up having a hand in this or am I fanboying too much? <laughs> I think they could, you don't have to see them for them to be there. Right. Puppet mastering the mm-hmm. the whole situation. So. And, and let's not forget too, that in the flashback episode of Voyager, when Captain Janeway was describing the 23rd century to Harry Kim, she described the Romulans as lurking around every wow. nebula. So yeah. let's uh, 
we'll we'll have to put a pin in this to see if if they might assert themselves at some point over this season, but probably not next week, if I were to guess. But uh, so let's move on with the actual plot of the episode. So Discovery or the Discovery's landing party of Saru, Michael Burnham, and Ash Tyler discover that Pavo is inhabited with indigenous life, as spore-like, as we alluded to earlier, and they introduce Saru to their higher understanding of peace, which alters Saru's perspective by releasing him from the fear he's held his entire life as a prey species. He attempts to force Burnham and Tyler to remain with him on the planet forever, destroying their communicators and attempting to convince them of the lifelong peace that awaits them if they just surrender themselves to the planet. Now, we already talked a bit about Saru's change in perspective, uh, but I thought that there was a few more interesting character notes that came out of Ash Tyler, because in some of the quieter discussions that he had one-on-one with Michael, he's alluding to more elements of his past and his life on Earth and what kinds of things are waiting for him after the war is over. So do we have any change in feelings on his potential as a Klingon spy? Or do you think he's either just detail-oriented or a sleeper agent? Rachel? Oh, he he is definitely a sleeper agent. I don't think, think so. No, I... Look... Like, I just, I don't think Vok was that wily. He didn't seem overly intelligent. dense. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I think he's got to be, like, they, like, uploaded this guy's brain into him or or something. Gruesome. I don't know. Possible. Not, like, physically, like. Well, you never, yeah, you never know. (laughs) Okay. Neo in his way, you know, I know humanity. <laughs> Zachy, what do you think? Any feelings or changes in feelings about Ash Tyler? He's a sleeper, baby. That's it. <laughs> it's going to be a heel turn, and it's going to break Michael's heart. And that's uh, and and it'll be. I mean, it'll be. I think. I think him being a sleeper makes more sense because it's like she did fall in love with a real person. Sure. Right. And so yeah. that you know, and then can, like, can that person come back? If you know, like, is it just like flipping a switch and there's this person and this person? I don't know. That's my guess. Yeah, how wild would it be if, uh, if at the end of all of this, he's given a choice to return to Kronos or to remain a human? That would be pretty, uh, pretty interesting. But Cicero, what do you think now about Lieutenant Ash Tyler? So there was nothing about uh, the things that happened between Michael Burnham and, and Ash Tyler that uh, led me to believe anything that I, uh, you know, or, or changed any of my preconceived notions about Ash Tyler during the episode. But um, it, there were things that did make me second guess that. And that happened with Laurel. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Right. Um, yes. So, so there was nothing between the two of them that made me think anything other than what I had already thought. Okay. Fair enough. Well, let's move on then to a, a character that I think we've all gravitated toward in some measure or another, even if we didn't think we would when we first saw him, but Lieutenant Stamets. Stamets! Damn it, as he said before, but uh, he's getting a little mixed up with his perception of time that seems to be a direct result of his initiation as the Spore Drive's navigator. Uh, he even accidentally referred to Cadet Tilly as Captain, which raised my eyebrows, I'll tell you that much. But when Tilly confronts him in the mess hall later, 
He tells her about his slipping grip on reality. He's not quite sure what he knows at what point at any given time. And she insists on helping him through it without putting his loved ones like Dr. Kolber or any other officers at risk because, as Stamets explains in the episode, it would put pretty much anybody he could tell in a very difficult situation. So Tilly shoulders that burden herself and decides to help Lieutenant Stamets where she can in keeping his grip on reality. So... First critical question, and I want to throw this to our resident Stamets champion first, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Holman. Is this the end of Groovy Stamets, and what kind of effect do you think this will have on him long term? Um, so I think Groovy Stamets is there. He's you know he's 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 chilling out right now before before the groove begins again. Um, but what it, <laughs> what it does show me is that he clearly doesn't care about Cadet Tilly because he tells her everything. <laughs> And he's like, oh, anyone I care about, you know, now has this selfish choice to make. Um, but <laughs> so I, I, the thing is, so, you know, it's it's also weird about Stamets, and and you know, and obviously, I think he's going to play a huge role in the direction that Discovery takes in future seasons, simply because of the, the of the choice that he made to run to to run the the, the spore drive. And, mm-hmm. you know, he like it, like he said in, in previous week's episode, he exists outside of time and right. and his brain isn't built to handle that. Like he wasn't, you know, he wasn't prepared for what is happening to him before it started happening to him. So he's still trying to get a grip of get a grasp of everything that's happening. And I, I think that uh, I, I think. It's it's a good thing for him and Cadet Tilly to do this together because if one thing that Tilly has uh, been shown to do is kind of been the heart, she's been the heart of this of this uh, this show uh, so far. Mm-hmm. Like she's the conscience of of everyone. Uh, so I think that if anyone can help him, it is Cadet Tilly. Go Stamets. Well said. <laughs> Zachy, what do you think about uh, Groovy Stamets and how this is going to impact the show in the long term? You know, I think this is this is one of the disadvantages of having like a multi-tier storyline where you have all these different plot threads playing out because some are more interesting than others. And at least for me, I don't know about you all, but the Stamets thing was most interesting to me. Yes, in this whole yes. Episode. sure. And it, and it got the yeah. least play. Least the, yes. Yeah, and it did. So, so every really time did. we cut to you know like uh, uh, the Klingon ship or the planet, I'm like, all right, all right come on, what's going on with Stamets? You know, <laughs> and this is the disadvantage of like not being able to just binge watch the whole thing in one fell swoop. So I, I truly have no idea what's going on. I I feel like maybe he's seeing, uh, kind of you know based on what we saw last time, maybe he's just seeing like multiple uh, potential timelines sort of overlapping with each other, and he doesn't know. Uh, mm-hmm. up from down that that's the only thing i can sort of pause it but i mean geez it, that's super intriguing you know like uh and partially because you know when you think about it the spore drive is the one thing out of all of this that we have no idea what the end game is for that and i think that's what sure. makes it intriguing you know yeah absolutely rachel are you on team stamets oh sure <laughs> <laughs> um I just, I think you said like he's unstuck in time, Chris, but I think he might also be like unstuck in like realities, like yeah. like what Zachy was saying with multiple timelines that he's seeing possible futures. 
and um, maybe like Cadet Tilly isn't going to be the captain in the future, but maybe in an alternate timeline, like every like all the officers on the Discovery have been killed, and she just happens to be the, <laughs> the captain. Or <laughs> so, um, I'm yeah, I'm really interested to see what's going on. And and where did Groovy Stamets go? I don't understand, and yeah. I want a resolution because I miss him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he'll he'll be yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll be back. He'll be back. Groovy Stamets. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I I miss him too. Wouldn't it be wild if there ends up being a fourth Kelvin timeline movie and Stamets makes reference to like where's Lorca or something? Right. I, yeah. I, I I mean in general I'm curious about the the alternate reality counterparts of these characters. Now I hope that they might make some kind of small appearance in the future, even if it's just like something short and sweet, like Quinto and Sinequa Martin Green sharing That'd a scene together sweet. sounds That'd pretty awesome. Oh my, oh my gosh. Oh man, that would but, that would be like half a season's uh, uh, budget in order to make that happen. So, oh sure, yeah. well in a movie, yeah. I mean oh. if if they showed up in the movie, oh, then awesome. I would be, would be I'd awesome. be into that. Be awesome. Admiral Lorca giving Kirk orders, yeah. something like that. I, I would be yeah. into that, but I'm also pedantic that way. But <laughs> I think I think uh, oh I just want to say this. I, I think that Stamets sees the world now like Jake Gyllenhaal and Donnie Darko. And there's just these bubbles <laughs> following him around like Leviathan where he sees all possibilities. That's that's his life now. Those are his eyes. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's a very fair analogy to make. Uh, well, another thing I wanted to touch on is that this episode now accounts for the second allusion to a possible destiny for Cadet Tilly in a captain's chair. Uh, obviously, Rachel posited a scenario where maybe just everybody died and she could have ended up in the captain's chair that way. But that character moment a couple of weeks ago between her and Burnham, uh, where she talked about her intentions to be a captain in the future. Is this too much or does this add an interesting enough wrinkle, wrinkle rather, to how you perceive Tilly and what her ambitions are? Zachy, what do you think? Uh, um you know, I, I think she's an interesting character. I, I can't say that the, the, the allusions to her potentially being a captain make her any more interesting. I think uh, just watching, because where, whatever that is would be so far down the line that it has almost no bearing on, on who she is right now. Sure. I think, I, think I, I, I was sort of hot and cold on her in the beginning, but I've come to like her just because I think she, she is, uh, she, she, she's sort of a, a unique character in the Star Trek mythos in that she's, uh, a sort of a relatable kid who's in Starfleet, and that's—I don't think we've ever gotten that. We've gotten the unrelatable kid in Starfleet, and that's Wesley, and then we've got the kid in Starfleet, and that's Jake. So, so Tilly's got right. the space all to herself, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. Yeah, Rachel, what do you think? Uh, I don't think it's too much. I think it's interesting, and I think it's—I um, think it's obvious to presume that most cadets, or a, at least a good portion of cadets, have ambitions to become a captain so right uh, if you're gonna have a cadet character that that seems like a natural kind of character trait to have like that episode where eddington was after cisco was promoted to captain he said no one wants to be a chief of security <laughs> everyone wants to be a captain right. right yeah but how did that work out for eddington <laughs> but 
Not 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 great. Cicero, what do you think? How's Tilly uh striking you and is is this a little too heavy-handed with a possible destiny for her? Well, no, I, you know, as I already previously said, I really do like Tilly. I, I you know, I, I enjoy all the characters on the show and I think that uh uh kind of like what Zachy said is, you know, the thing that that makes her endearing is the fact that she seems the most relatable to us, the viewer, um in the, in the Star Trek universe and and uniquely so. Um you know, you know what that kind of makes me think of is because we know that this show was originally planned, at least in Brian Fuller's mind, as an anthology that would not maintain necessarily maintain a single cast over multiple seasons. Uh, I wonder if Tilly at some point was going to serve as some connective tissue. Maybe. Like where maybe a second right. season that takes place in a different era would have shown her as the commander of right. her own ship right. or something to that effect. Right. Obviously we'll never know, yeah. but yeah, it's kind of, kind of fun to think about. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I think that, uh, as far as her aspirations, um, everyone has aspirations when they start somewhere, uh, you know, you mm -hmm. start a job in an office or you start a job anywhere. Um, you know, you, you're happy. You're first happy that you got the job. Um, because you're excited about it. And then, and then you take the time to think about where you want to be. And, and the, and the, and, you know, the obvious choice is the top of the ladder. Um, sure. And, but as you, as you continue to work and grow and learn and experience different things, you may find that you have a passion for something that doesn't lead to the top of the ladder. So at this point, I don't put much stock into the fact that, you know, if she's got, uh, aspirations to be in the captain's chair, then that's fine. But I, you know, I don't put much stock into the fact that that's where she's going to wind up. Um, you know, she may mm -hmm. wind up anywhere. Who knows? Sure, I think that's a, a very fair assessment. So uh, let's move on. Then uh, Burnham is able to fight off Saru in a surprisingly visceral sort of uh, bit of one-on-one -on -one combat between the two of them. I'm surprised she wasn't able to pull off a nerve pinch this time. Uh, obviously, it's not perfect. Since He's too tall. Captain Giorgio got up from. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's probably it. So maybe he doesn't have that nerve. Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, Spock used it on everybody, yes, though. Did. I mean, with without much inhibition. But I mean, it doesn't necessarily disprove what you're saying. But uh, so she's able to fight him off and broadcast a new signal. However, the Pavo life forms adjust that signal. And it contacts the Klingons in addition to contacting Discovery. Uh, the Pavo, as, as we learned a little bit earlier, want to try and even the stakes. They want to end the war that they learned about was happening between the Federation and the Klingon Empire from Saru. So uh, the away team is transported back to Discovery. Uh, Saru was looked over by the medical staff on board. He apologizes. And obviously, we don't quite know what the dividing line was and why he did such an instant change in his perspective. But uh, elsewhere, and this is, I, this is the first mention of the Klingon subplot that we've gotten to so far, but it's been happening throughout this whole episode. Cole receives the signal at the end of the episode after he sentences Laurel to death. Earlier, she had tried to help Admiral Cornwell escape in exchange for defection to the Federation and protection from Cole. And uh, this apparently leads to Laurel killing Cornwell to try and save face with Call, 
But apparently that didn't work because Call still ended up punishing her in some way. And we don't know exactly how because then the episode was just about over. So I saved the Klingon subplot for the end. And I think I know what you're going to say, Zaki. So are you still relatively disengaged with these dips into the Klingon side of things? Why or why not? Dude, so disengaged. (laughs) (laughs) Every time, every time we cut away, my shoulders slump a little bit. I'm like, (laughs) all right, let's just, let's just get through this, you know? And, and I don't know. It's, it's, they, first of all, I, same, what I said before applies. I just, I'm, I'm tired of hearing them talk. Right. I'm (laughs) kind of tired of looking at them. Wow. Like, wow. they're so nasty looking. Like, I, I miss the old Klingons. Like, this is not even like a canon conversation. It's just like a, like a, something less unpleasant to look at conversation, you know? Is that racist against Klingons? I don't know, you know? Well, you're human, so I think it's a natural inclination. <laughs> so I'm, Humans I'm, and Klingons have historically not gotten along. You know, seriously, I'm, it's, it's, I, I think that's one of the reasons I'm really happy that they are moving towards wrapping up the Klingon more thing, because it's just, it's just not interesting to me, you know? And they're working very hard to make it as uninteresting as possible. Uh, I, that's kind of where I'm at, you know? And the, and the thing, with the, I mean, the Cornwell story is kind of crucial to the episode. Uh, but it was like mm-hmm. that was like the hardest thing for me to pay attention to. Yeah, I think that's understandable. Rachel, what do you think about the Klingon stuff now that we're near the end of what's described as chapter one? Uh, I felt like it was like really confusing because you can't interpret their facial expressions <laughs> under all the makeup. Right. Mm. Well, I'm like when Laurel is you know saying, "Oh, I'm I'm gonna save Admiral Cornwell." Is she being serious? I I wasn't sure, but then I guess she was, and and um I don't know. Like I just it was really hard for me to interpret what was happening. And I is Cornwell dead? I don't. That yeah, wasn't they, clear they, to me either. Maybe it wasn't supposed to be, but they left that pretty open ended. I I was mostly just confused about it. Mm-hmm. I just never really quite understood what was happening. Cicero, you seemed relatively engaged with the Klingon stuff in previous episodes. Is that holding up? Yeah, I've I've been engaged because of curiosity. You know, is it's not because I feel I feel connected to their storyline per se. It's it's actually kind of the opposite. I think it's because I'm I'm so unconnected to what's going on. I'm hoping that the writers will give me that aha moment. I need that Kaiser Sose moment. Uh, to sorry, Kevin Spacey, but 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 you know, I but I need that I need that light bulb moment, and I'm 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 holding on to faith that the writers are going to give that to me, and I really haven't gotten that yet from them. Um, this thing with Laurel, I like I don't understand whether or not you know like you know kind of like what Rachel said like I wasn't sure if she was being serious I'm not sure you know like I'm not sure if we're supposed to know and and you know whether like I obviously Laurel has she has always been you know she's she's definitely been in Volk's corner uh the entire time mm-hmm. um and you know more than more than any other Klingon and you know and you know outside of her house and uh, she could always smell the writing that was on the wall, and she knew that she couldn't 
hang out with Cole because he was crazy and things were, were going to go south um, as soon as, you know, as soon as it, it, it worked into Cole's favor. So she knew that she needed to extricate herself from that situation. But the, the thing that doesn't make it a lot of sense to me is she's been very, very savvy this entire time. Um, she's been, you know, she she comes from a house of spies. She understands what it means to be duplicitous. To to carry Cornwell out of the cell and and march her to her ship, like like the two of them are crew members walking to another portion of the ship, makes absolutely no sense. Cornwell wasn't restrained in any sort of way. She wasn't being yeah. dragged. She wasn't being manhandled. There was nothing that would lead you to indicate if you were another Klingon as they were, uh, you know, come upon by call and, and another Klingon. There was nothing that would lead you to believe if you were crew members on that ship that it was a prisoner and an interrogator walking together through the hallways. It just looked like two sure. crew members. And that just doesn't make any sense based on who we know Laurel to be. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's, that's a, a very fair assessment and an insightful one too. Yeah. I mean, as far as my perspective on the Klingon stuff is concerned, Rachel, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head for me because I found myself being a little confused, especially when, Cole put the paint on her face, but then he immediately revealed right after that, that he, Oh, nope, just kidding. (laughs) Go to jail. That's like, that's basically what happened. And there wasn't really much to indicate what he was really thinking while he was leading her to believe that she was actually being accepted by him. Yeah. Like what was the point of that? Yeah. 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 It was, it was, it was the Godfather kiss on the lips. Is that what, I I mean, that's, that's what it was. But at least with the, the Godfather kiss on the lips, you get an idea of intent even from before that point. Right. And with this, it seems like there's a lot of uh, competing ideas at play about what's exactly going on. Now, I understand that the show is probably trying to lead us into a conclusion where we don't fully understand what the plot of the Klingons are, specifically as it pertains to Valk and Laurel. But, uh, I mean, the language isn't getting to me much, but maybe it is the the lack of expressiveness. I didn't really think about that because as I was re-watching the episode today, I was like, what what am I missing here? What am I not connecting? I I think there's a problem with not knowing the uh, TV makers' intentions here because sometimes when you don't right. know what's going right. on, but you understand that you're not supposed to know, mm-hmm. then that's okay. But I think the problem with some of these things is where I I don't know what's going on, and I'm not sure if I missed something or if I'm supposed to right. know or like yeah, right. I just feel a little bit un right. unstuck right. in the in the plot. I've- I think the thing that we we are supposed to know is that Cole can't be trusted, uh, and and you know from from the moment that we saw him with Takuvma, um, in in the first episode, he was the one that that you know was was definitely not drinking the Kool Aid, right? And then when he and then when he came around, back when Volk was in charge. He, uh, you know, the, the, he offered himself up, and he was greeted with with uh, with compassion and or you know or the Klingon version of compassion uh, and acceptance, and he immediately took that and and ran with it 
and and turn the tables on Volk and Laurel. So so the thing that I think we we're automatically supposed to know about Call is whatever he says, don't believe. Mm-hmm. If he says, you know, if he says he's going to consider your request, just consider it denied. He'll consider it like your mom, you know, says, I'll think about it. <laughs> um, so, but, but like, you know, if he, if he's, if he's saying that he's going to pull you into, in, into his inner circle, you're not, you're not going to be in his inner circle. Or if you are, it's only going to be as long as it's, it makes sense for him. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a very good point. I can't help but think of him in terms of his soul canonical connection because Cole House of Core immediately conjures, well, core hmm. in my head. And, uh, the, the, what we know about Core from his appearances in well, his appearance in the original series and his appearances in Deep Space Nine is that his house is very protective of Klingon nobility, uh, and we got that we we got the sense that the House of Core and Cole specifically has that same kind of predilection to protect noble Klingon blood, noble Klingon houses, and that's one of the reasons why he rejects Takuma and why he rejects uh, Vok. And potentially one of the reasons why he rejects Laurel, but we don't really have a whole lot of other details beyond what Cicero mentioned about her house. But, uh, I mean, we don't see Cole at any other point in the series or any other point in the timeline. And I'm wondering exactly how the House of Core is going to, uh, to react to this at some point down the line, maybe in the second chapter of the episode. But we'll see. I mean, that's... That's fanboyish speculation on my part, which I'm really good at doing. But um, the episode finishes out with Discovery intercepting the signal from the planet's surface. And then the Klingons arrive shortly thereafter. And this creates a tense standoff as the show dismisses until next week. So there's another canonical thing that I wanted to bring up with this specifically, because this is a scenario that we've actually seen once before. And that was an errand of mercy in the original series, which was the very first appearance of the Klingons and where, coincidentally enough, Kor made his appearance on the show. The Pavo seemed to be taking a very similar approach to the Organians in Errand of Mercy. Now, for those of you who may not remember, in Errand of Mercy, the Organians were life forms of pure energy, but they didn't appear that way. The Enterprise had arrived on the planet Organia to try and protect them from an oncoming Klingon force where... They said the Klingons were going to enslave them and murder them. And it appeared that the Klingons were doing that, but the Organians didn't care. And you found out later that it's because, oh, they're a highly evolved uh, form of life and they can't be killed by conventional weapons by any means. And the Organians actually force a peace treaty between the Federation and the Klingons by, (laughs) I still laugh about it. Like they would try to activate their weapons on their ships, but the controls would get too hot. Like they'd have to jump up from their stations on the bridge and they couldn't fight each other. Like they were physically incapable of fighting each other with their weapons. The Pavo seem like they're kind of taking a similar approach, but they are extraordinarily naive when compared to the Organians. Uh, and it doesn't seem like they have the ability or intention necessarily to forcefully stop the Klingons and the Federation from further bloodshed. So this standoff, is this going to lead to a battle at the binary stars situation or could this be the beginning of the end of the war or maybe both Cicero? What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, it's clearly we're, you know, this is going to be the episode that, uh, 
that ends the first half of the season. So, you know, we're going to end it with a some sort of uh, standoff. Um, you know, I, I'm dubious as to whether or not uh, the, uh, this, the species that doesn't really have an understanding, you know, they have, they have a basic understanding of Saru's understanding of this conflict. Right. And, and, and so, and because they, the, the only version of, (coughs) excuse me, sentient beings that they know is Saru they can't possibly understand. Like they can't just come in and say, all right, guys, cut it out. (laughs) Um, You know, now you're in front of each other, you know, hug it out and everything's going to be okay. I mean, that's just, it's it's just, it's not, it's not going to happen that way. Um, You know, and, and obviously we need some type of crazy cliffhanger to, to lead us into uh, chapter two of season one. Sure. Zachy. I, I made the Organian connection uh, as well while while watching, and it it occurred to me that I was like, you know, it's so similar. Like they're they're these sort of energy beings, and I was like, man, what? Why are they? Like, it, I feel like there there's got to be some kind of greater game plan. I I I would assume, given that they plan to wrap up the storyline, the the war storyline as it exists in the first year that this might play some kind of role in that. But I, it, it, the similarities to the Organians to me is kind of distracting to be honest. Sure. Yeah. I think that's totally understandable. Rachel. They're totally different from the Organians because they're not energy. They're spores of some sort. <laughs> oh, right. <They're> a, a, <laughs> a cloud of gas. Um, no. Um, I think it'd be really interesting if the Pavo have something, some crazy ability up their sleeve that just like totally like throws a wrench in the plans of the, of Starfleet and the Klingons for destroying each other. Mm -hmm. So, um, I look forward to watching it. I don't, I don't have any like strong predictions. I just think there, maybe there's more to the Pavo than meets the eye. Oh, all right. Fair (laughs) enough. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe uh, the Organian peace treaty is going to end up in the continuity being like the Death Star 2, where like every time the Klingons and the Federation come into conflict, it's like there's an energy being or spore being that's like, now guys, (laughs) you need to stop the fighting right now because this is not going to work for anybody. No, and, um, you know, I think the fact, Cicero, you alluded to this, the fact that uh, we're going into the midseason finale answers this question to a degree. This is probably going to be the beginning of the end of the war in some form or fashion. Whether the Pavo have a greater role to play beyond just, I guess, creating the venue for their standoff is anybody's guess. But uh, yeah, Zachy, I'm with you. The, the, the Organian comparison is a bit distracting because it is kind of on the nose other than, you know, the energy versus spore <laughs> distinction between the, the kinds of life forms they are. But uh, I have to think that because of the relative unexpected directions that the show has gone in thus far, specifically as it pertains to the rules of the universe, hmm. there's they've got to have something up their sleeve. I'll be really interested to see what next week's episode fully looks like and and what form it's going to end up taking but uh why don't we wind this down um before i i, I hand it off to you guys one thing i do want to state is that i saw the reaction to this episode from some relatively prominent personalities in the franchise whether they are 
people who've been associated with the production or whether it's people who've written some of the official novels. I seem to see a general reaction that seemed to convey the idea that a lot of people embedded in the franchise felt that this one was the most Star Trek of the episodes that we've seen in Discovery. Right. So that's the question I'll throw to you guys. And giving your final thoughts, do you agree or disagree with that statement? And how do you think this plays into the wider scheme of the season at large? Zachy, why don't we start with you? Well, I, I, I stand by what I said earlier. I mean, I, to, to me, this one does kind of feel like a miss. And maybe for the reason you cite, which is that, you know, we've had uh, several series do standard Star Trek, you know, tropes, you know. And so, so to me, I'm not as interested as, oh, here's Discovery's take on the landing party goes awry story. Like, I, I like the fact that the show has really been been telling non-traditional Star Trek stories within the Star Trek universe, and e- even uh, the 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 last week's uh, uh, one, which was very similar to the Next Generation episode, but it felt very uniquely Discovery. This one, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a swing and a miss for me. Okay, fair enough. Cicero, how about you? Uh, yeah, I, I think that I, I've read uh, many of the same articles saying the same things, but I didn't feel the same way about it. And maybe it's because I've I've felt like Discovery has blazed its own trail within this universe. And, sure. and you know, like Zachy said, that uh, maybe it, it is because this show, the, because this episode was more like uh, episodes, you know, like more like your father's Star Trek. Um, hmm. that, that made it feel kind of out of place, uh, amongst the, the other episodes, uh, within, within the series. Interesting. I didn't really think that that would lend to a feeling of being stale, but I can absolutely see that conclusion. Rachel? I think that this, this ineffable quality of being like Star Trek or the most Star Trek, the problem is that that's not a quantifiable variable right i mean it's it's based on your emotional response to the episode and um i you know i didn't i didn't have that special emotional response to this episode as much as the other ones i mean i still i still had a good time um that's just relatively speaking but if other people did have that then that's great and but that's their you know sort of their personal experiences building to give them that so there, there you go being inclusive of other people's points of view. You can't, you can't do that in a Star Trek discussion. I'm sorry. You're all wrong. So wrong. Get out. Well, and, and just to wind this down, as for my feelings about it, I'm in kind of the, of a similar boat as Rachel. Uh, only because... This episode wasn't, it certainly wasn't offensive to my taste as a Star Trek fan, but it also, similarly to you guys, it didn't evoke as much of an emotional response from me. Uh, Maybe that means that I've started to take the show for granted. I certainly hope not. But, uh, I mean, I appreciate any Star Trek that comes my way, I think. But, yeah, I mean, I can see why being like other Star Trek may not necessarily be a positive in this show's corner, especially considering that the general mission of Discovery seems to be to, uh, well, to dare to be different. And uh, that's definitely something that has stuck with me 
over the course of watching the first season. And it sounds like it's usually stuck with you guys, at least in the best examples that we've seen so far. But we talked about it before. We knew that we were going to talk about an episode that didn't necessarily set all of our worlds on fire. And it sounds like this one might be the the first one. Certainly a respectable effort, but uh, maybe not quite as engaging or enthralling as, as some of us may have hoped. But I hopefully that's not something that's going to afflict next week's because next week's is by definition going to have to be consequential right. because it wants to keep us on the hook until January when uh, when the show returns in the new year. So uh, I think that's actually going to uh, to do it for this episode. We didn't get any listener feedback only because my uh, my sick self didn't really have the energy, I guess, to, to try and seek it out. So that's the only reason why, but, um, always appreciate having the panel on board. We, we love talking Star Trek and, uh, and hopefully this is something that's going to continue for a long time to come. So that's actually going to do it for episode seven of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you would be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook or your podcasting app of choice. It only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it is posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed so you can come along with us next week to discuss Discovery's ninth episode, the final one of 2017, which airs this coming Sunday. Uh, The day we're recording this is Wednesday, November 8th. Uh, Also, be sure to listen in next week for details of what we will be up to during the mid-season break because we don't intend to go anywhere. We might not come to you as frequently, but we still do want to stick around and talk one of the absolutely greatest sci-fi franchises and adventures in human history. So, for Rachel, for Cicero, and Zachy, I'm Chris. Thanks again for listening, and please, as always, boldly go, my friends. (laughs) 